Beautiful picture of transformation that is. Uh, my name is Nancy, and uh, we've had such a rich time here already, and you should never follow a cute baby. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> In those skinny jeans, oh my goodness, he's just too cute. When I come to church on Sunday, maybe like you, I sometimes wonder, okay, what's the focus going to be um, for today? And so you hear that we're in a series, The Art of Being. That sounds so great. I mean, who doesn't like art? And being is good. It's way better than not being. And, you know, then you hear that we're going to go with a specific focus on spiritual growth. And maybe when you hear that part, you feel a little bit deflated. Maybe you're like me when Jared asked me if I would teach this weekend on transformation, and my impulse reaction was, oh, could I teach on something else, you know, because it's not really my strongest suit, and I always feel like I should be doing something different. You know, that word should creeps in a lot when we talk about spiritual growth. And I would guess you coming in here today, unless you were completely dragged by someone, you want to grow spiritually. I mean, you wouldn't be here. You have other options on Sunday. You wouldn't be here unless you long to grow but the problem is that we feel stuck sometimes, don't we? We don't know how to go about it. And we're not even exactly sure what the goal is. I kind of lost my way early on with this. When I was about 10 years old in the church where I grew up, we had something called Children's Church. That was one of the hours I spent on Sunday. We didn't have cool names like Soul City Kids. We called it Children's Church, which was surely a big draw to any child who wanted to come. <laughs> And uh, the leader of Children's Church was this kind of short, elderly, balding, round man named Mr. Ernie. You know, not Bert and Ernie. His last name was Ernie. And uh, I am sure that he had really good intentions for trying to get young children to read the Bible and to memorize the Bible. But he decided how he would motivate us would be to set up a competition. So one day he held up a really fat, big catalog. Now, for those of you who are under 30, that was a book that used to list like all the items that you could get in a store because we lacked basic necessities like the internet. So we had to have these really big fat catalogs. And he said, for the boy or girl who memorizes the most Bible verses and can quote them to me word for word, you're going to win a prize out of this catalog. You're going to get to choose, actually, any item you want for about $25 or so. My eyes were like this big. And I embarked on a quest to win that prize. And I did. You know what I selected? It was a red plaid skirt. You can still see it. It was fabulous. <laughs> Loved it. But thinking that spiritual growth was all about performance was one of the ways that I have lost my way over time. Have any of you lost your way thinking it's about your performance? Well, I think there's a lot of myths connected to spiritual growth, and I want to go after some of those together and see if you identify with any of these, and we're going to kind of bust some of these myths. So let's start with the first one. The first myth was that spiritual growth, for me, I thought was about finding the right formula. I thought, surely if I just uncover the most effective technique, then I will become mature in Christ. I just have to do certain things. And so church leaders taught us how to have what they called a quiet time. And this was a time, always in the morning, because apparently that's when God speaks to us, is in the morning, which really bugs my husband, who's a night person. But it's got to be in the morning. And it had an acronym, usually, like ACTS or SOAP. Um, I often use the ACTS one, which stood for Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. 
So I would go through each of those steps, and I would read my Bible, and I would pray. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. But somehow, I thought if I just checked that process off my list, I was good to go. And actually, if I missed certain days, I felt really terrible, and I thought, you know, maybe God's mad at me. And I rarely, honestly, took much of what I spent that time with in the morning with me throughout the rest of the day. I thought, if I just keep trying harder, maybe I will be a more spiritual person. Did any of you ever try that? I wanted to be in control of the process. And if you're an achiever in the rest of your life, you kind of bring that sickness to your <laughs> spiritual growth. <laughs> Myth number two for me was that I thought spiritual growth is optional. Many of us are inclined to think that if we make a decision to follow Jesus, as 61 people did here last weekend, and maybe you've recently uh, made that kind of decision, we think, okay, but then the next step is optional. Uh, maybe normal people don't have to go really deep spiritually. That's for like the monks and the mystics. And this is misguided on, on so many fronts. It really helps me to use a different phrase for spiritual growth. In recent years, uh, many church leaders have been using the phrase spiritual formation. You see, formation is not an option. Every one of us is being formed into some kind of person. Even the worst criminals are being formed. We're all in a process, and that process is either leading toward wholeness, toward being more loving and kind and just and patient and gentle and forgiving, or we are becoming more intolerant and angry and bitter and self-absorbed. Every choice we make, every thought we allow to take up space in our minds, every response we have and every reaction we display, moment to moment, is shaping us into a certain kind of person. So what exactly is spiritual formation? I really like this definition from M. Robert Mulholland. He says, spiritual formation is a process of being conformed to the image of Christ, get this, for the sake of others. Now, because I'm afraid you're falling asleep, I want you to read that aloud with me right now with some energy. Okay, let's read this definition. Spiritual formation is a process of being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others. You and I are either becoming more like Jesus or less like Jesus every day. So I want to look at a few Bible verses that illustrate this so strongly. Um, if you brought a Bible, bring it, bring it out. Otherwise, there's one in the seat pocket right in front of you. Turn to page 815. This is in the book of Ephesians, where we were last weekend with Jared. Ephesians chapter 4. Now, this book was written by the Apostle Paul, and he has just been describing the way the church is set up according to spiritual gifts. And he now is going to describe the purpose of those gifts and really the purpose of why we come together and why we spend time with God. So this is what he says. To equip his people for works of service. That's the purpose. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants. We won't be tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, 
we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. In the message version of this passage, it says we will become like Christ in everything. Like Christ in everything. Formation is not an option. We are being formed. It's not something we can take or leave. We are becoming more or less like Jesus. That clears up, I think, the next myth, which has to do with the goal of spiritual formation. What is it even for? Myth number three is that the goal is to make God love me more. And oh, by the way, a little fringe benefit, maybe to impress others too. So I want to make God love me more and I want to impress other people. Philip Yancey once wrote words that said, there is nothing I can do to make God love me more. And there's nothing I can do to make him love me less. This is not about earning brownie points with God, even though so often we lose our way thinking it, that it's true. Last week, we explored what it means to begin a partnership with Jesus, a relationship with Jesus. And Jared taught us, and we looked in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2, and we learned that it's rooted in grace, right? It is a gift of grace. Well, guess what? Spiritual formation is also rooted in grace. They come from the same place. In his book, The Me I Want to Be, uh, John Ortberg shows it this way. This is me, the current version. So this is who I am right now, who you are right now in uh, 2015, the current me. And out here somewhere is me, God's best version of me. Okay? Now, I want to clear up one other misconception, and that is that sometimes we think, okay, we're all supposed to become like Christ. Does that mean we're all going to be clones? We're all going to be like exactly like each other. And what I love is that, no, God has a best version of you given your unique wiring, given the personality that he gave you. How would you be living if Jesus was in your body, in your home, in your workplace, in your neighborhood? That's God's best version of me. Now, to get from here to there, most of us, as we've said, think it's all about our own efforts. And God says, no, even this, we're saved by grace, and we also ultimately grow by grace. That's how it happens for me to get to God's best version of me. So the goal is for me to grow in that direction, to flourish in every way, to be fully alive. And we're not uh, thinking you know, that it, this is a snap, quick thing. This is a lifelong process. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Myth number four, the test of spiritual formation is how much I know. Did you ever get off track with this one like I have? How do we get so lost? See, the litmus test is not how much we know about the Bible or theology or doctrine. All those tools are helpful, but they are not the point. The actual litmus test for spiritual formation goes back to Mulholland's definition. It's for the sake of others. So who is mature in the faith? Those who are most like Jesus, who are kind and forgiving and just and wise and tolerant and generous and gracious and courageous and bold and most of all, loving. The most obvious indication of people who are not growing spiritually is that they are very difficult to live with. Clearly, Christ is not being formed in them. So I want to say this as bluntly as I possibly can. You can be scary smart about this book and be an absolute jerk. You really can. It's not about how much you know. 
So with the time we have left, I want to offer you a new picture of spiritual formation. At least it's been new to me in the last several years, and one that I think captures in a much more helpful way how you and I get from here to there. It's not about the right formula, and it's not about our performance. This is a picture of a river. We have a photograph of a river, and when you look at that river, you see that it has a current to it. Richard Rohr describes God's grace as living in the river, being in the river of his grace. But there's some extremes that we can go to even when we're living in a river. Even if you're already a Christ follower, you can think that your response is to be passive, to basically just say, oh, it's all about grace, perfect. I don't have any involvement. I'm like this little kid who's floating in the river. Look at him. <laughs> it's easy street, okay? This is the passive approach. If he didn't have that inner tube and he was in some deep waters, this is what that leads to. You drown if you're in that place. That is not what it means. That is not what it means to be in the river of God's grace. But then there's another extreme way, way on the other end, and this one is about performance. This is the one that says, it all comes down to me. It's all about my effort. We have a picture of a guy in the rapids. And if you've ever done this, it's exhausting. Some of you drive like that person. You know, we just, you're just nuts. You're just, it's all about me and it's my intensity and we're thrashing around and it's ugh, all about performance. Neither one of those extremes is the true picture of how we are to be in the river. We are to be not passive, not performers, but partners. We're partners with God in the river. And it's really the picture of floating. Now, if you look at a person floating, you might think they're passive. But if you've really floated in deep water, you know there's an energy you have to bring to it. If you let go and you do nothing, you will drown. But when you float, you find the current of God's grace and you align yourself with the current. And that's the true picture of partnership. Here at Soul City Church, there's been a statement that I love um, that says partnership is doing what only I can do while God does what only he can do. There is a distinct role that each of us play. We surrender ourselves, we go with the flow, but our part in the partnership is to engage in certain practices that are avenues of God's grace. And these are historic practices that have been taught for centuries that are a part of the Bible that say these are the ways people get transformed. You need to align yourselves with these kinds of practices. And these include things like silence and solitude and Bible reading and meditation and prayer and accountable relationships and worship. All of these things contribute to the process of the broken parts of us slowly over time being transformed. Now, we don't have the luxury to explore all of those today, so I'm going to emphasize just one of the biggies and it's the management of our minds. And I'm gonna give you something very practical that you can take away today and begin to practice. You see, true change always begins in our minds. Our brain is the control tower of all of our actions. Everything starts with how we think. You and I decide what is going to fill our minds. And by the way, isn't it interesting? No one else knows what's going through your mind, the kind of thoughts that you're having. Ortberg urges us to ask this question. Are my thoughts leading me toward life, toward the best version of me, or in the other direction? You know, we have thought patterns. And if we could open up all of our thoughts and kind of look at the last week or so, we would see certain patterns in our thoughts. I want to give you a list of some of the kinds of thoughts 
that we might have. Some of us, just quickly read this, but some of us would say, you know, a lot of my thoughts are really grateful. That's a wonderful thing. Or maybe they're very hopeful. I have very positive thoughts much of the time. But others might say, you know what, if I'm brutally honest, I have a lot of anxious thoughts. I worry a lot. Or maybe I have a lot of defensive or angry thoughts or self-absorbed thoughts. And when we see patterns in our thinking, we can decide whether we want to redirect and how are we going to redirect and fill our mind instead with God-centered thoughts, with his promises and his truth. In Romans chapter 12, Paul describes this as letting God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Changing the way you think. So much is connected to what we put in our minds. So now we've come full circle. Do you know why we read this book? Not to earn points and win a prize or impress other people or seem so smart. We read this book to fill our minds with God's truth and God's thoughts and God's perspective and God's wisdom. If you brought a Bible or if you didn't, grab the one in front of you for a second. Just hold it. I'm not going to have you open it. I just want you to hold it. Hold a Bible, everybody. One of the things I love about our church is that they're not just kidding when they say, if you don't have one of these at home, we want you to steal a Bible from church today. And I really mean that. Nothing would give this staff more delight than if after uh, this gathering is over, they went through the seats and saw a lot of Bibles missing. They would know that people took them up on this offer. You need a Bible. And you need to know how to read this book. You need to know, how am I going to approach it? What am I going to do in 2015? And I've learned that there's lots of different ways to read the Bible. And there isn't a right or wrong approach, but I want to give you four different options. But first I want to say that you need to learn over time to treasure this book. To treasure this book. I will be uh, truthful and say there were times when it sat on my shelf and I looked at it and every time I saw it I just felt guilty. Like I don't know enough about it, I'm not reading it enough. And that has changed over time to the point where now I would say to you, I cannot imagine my life without this book. God has given this. He's preserved it through the centuries as a gift to us. It is a guidebook. It is a treasure. It is a source of hope and refuge and strength and guidance and wisdom when we're stuck. Learn to love this book. Now, there's many different ways to read it. One is what I call the 10,000-foot approach. I'm going to ask you to choose one of these for 2015. So pay attention, because it really depends on what season you're in and what you think would help you form God-centered thoughts most this year. Some of you have never read the Bible this way. This is reading it like you'd read a normal book. It's reading it with the sweeping sense of God's story. And there are programs that you can uh, look up online where you could read the Bible in a year or in two years. Um, some people say, I'm not going to read the whole Bible. I'm going to read the New Testament. That would be another choice. Just start with the back half and read the New Testament. Now, when you do one of those programs, they're going to give you a lot to read every day, big chunks. And I tried this once. And uh, if you get behind a couple days, oh, baby, um, you're really uh, catching up. OK, there's a lot to read. Um, so you have to know that going in, and you might say, you know, I want to ease the gas pedal a little and maybe do it in two years. But it's reading the Bible with a big picture view, okay? That's one option. A second option is to read one book of the Bible, and you might do a few throughout the year, but to start with one book of the Bible and read it very slowly. 
You might want to get a, a Bible study kind of Bible, like a life application Bible or something like that, or a commentary that would go with that book. And what you want to learn is, who was the author? And who was this originally written for? Who was the original audience? And understand its context. And dig deep into that book until you feel like you've really exhausted the richness of that book. If you've never done this before, I might suggest you start with the book of Luke. Um, we're heading towards spring and Holy Week, and you, know, you could read about the life of Jesus and drink in what his life was like and all the things he said while he was here on earth. Um, other people would say, you know what, I'm going to spend this year in the book of Psalms, in the poetry of the Psalms, or maybe in the Proverbs, which are all about wisdom. There's 31 Proverbs. You could take one every day uh, in a month. Every morning, read a different proverb, and, or evening, <laughs> sorry, and, um, and then uh, you could start over again the next month and, and do it again. I'm currently reading in the book of Genesis. I love the Old Testament and the, some of the stories in there, and I decided I wanted to do a deep study of the life of Jacob, so I've been kind of in Genesis. But this is an approach that says, I'm going to go deep with a book, and when I'm done with that book, I'll redirect and, and do another one. Okay, third approach is to read very short portions of scripture with your imagination and reflection. With this approach, you take just a few verses or maybe one story at a time, and you place yourself in the story. Maybe you, you imagine yourself as different characters or if you were right there, and you allow space and some silence to reflect on that story and what God might be impressing upon you. I know someone who lived in one chapter of the book of the Bible, Romans chapter 8, for an entire year. By the end of that year, he had basically memorized it, and he just kept mining and mining for the richness of that one chapter. So this is the opposite of the 10,000-foot approach. This is really short, and that might be the best thing for you right now. And then finally, you could get a devotional book. There's lots of different options here um, of resources that could help you. I did this last year, and this particular book organized each week according to certain themes, but I had a short amount of scripture verses to read for each day, and I felt like it was unified around a certain theme. Uh, if you're starting with a book of the Bible and you're brand new to this, please don't pick Leviticus. That's just not my favorite, not, not a great choice, um, but the whole Bible is led by God, so I'm sure there's a purpose in Leviticus. Um, <laughs> just don't start there, okay? Um, what will serve you best right now? There are so many different ways to fill your mind with the Bible, but what will be your choice? And I invite you to read this book with imagination, with expectancy, and with a spirit of obedience, with a willingness to conform uh, to what it's teaching you. God has brought me such a long way from thinking that spiritual formation was about my efforts and my performance or some special formula to a place of freedom, a place of joy, a place of finally getting it, that I get the goal now. The goal is for me to become more like Jesus. And God longs for this even more than you do and I do. He wants this for you. He wants you to flourish. He wants you to become, over time, the best possible version of you. And I think, like me, you want to get to the end of 2015 and look back and say, you know what? I'm more loving. I'm more kind. I'm more patient. I'm more wise. I'm slower with my tongue. I'm not so quick to be angry. I'm generous and open-hearted. 
And when we see that kind of progress, we say, God, you're partnering with me. By your grace, I'm in the river, and I'm aligning myself with, you, with your currents, and I'm engaging in practices that will change my mind and ultimately change my behavior. I think that's what all of us want, and that truly is the art of being. Would you stand to your feet, and we're going to pray. And I'm going to ask you to do what we did the very first weekend of the new year with Jarrett. We opened up our hands. This is a posture of saying, I'm going to float with you, God, this year. I'm going to get in that river. I'm going to let your grace flow me along. So if you would, open your hands, and I will lead us in a prayer. Gracious Father, we are so sorry for the ways we have lost touch with what it really means to grow up in you. Sorry for all the wasted energy and effort and wrong thinking. And we pray that we will align ourselves with the current of your outrageous grace. God, thank you for your river. Thank you for longing for us to grow and to be the best version of who you made us to be, who you designed us to be. This year, help us fall more in love with the book that you gave us as a guide, guidebook. Help us to dig in to listen for what you want to teach us and change our minds, God, and then over time, change our behavior. We want to partner with you. We thank you for the privilege of doing so. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior, our forgiver, our friend, and our leader. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.